my kids were young, Tammy and I were trying to figure out what we could do as young parents to take them off on, a, on an outing. And so we decided we'd go up to Lake Tahoe and do the raft down the Truckee River. You know, it's a very you know, slow-moving river. And so we went up there, we got the raft, we put our life preservers on, we began the journey, and it was leisurely, it was slow, it was meandering. And then all of a sudden, Courtney here began to cry, and we couldn't figure out, why is she crying? And we asked her, and she says, I just got hit in the nose. We're thinking, hit in the nose? We're the only ones in the raft. How did she get hit in the nose? Well, within 30 seconds, the sky was black, and it was hailing. It was pummeling. So she got hit in the nose really hard. It was coming down on us. We got young kids. We figured that doesn't look good for their face that they're pummeled by ice. So we pulled over to the side, and we turned the raft upside down, and we hid underneath it. It was, it was coming down. It was like a drum beating on top of us. And about five minutes later, it did stop, but then it rained and rained and rained. And after a while, as young parents, we said, we've had enough. We put the raft down. We climbed the hill. There was a car coming by, and four soaked people got in, and we went back to Tahoe City. That was a horrible raft trip, but that was an incredible storm. And a storm, as a family, we, we always remember those stories. Well, lately, we've been having lots of storms. I mean, we are talking Maria, but we had Jose, we had Irma, we had Harvey. A lot of storms have come our way. Uh, As we watched on TV and we looked at Hurricane Harvey, uh, it turns out it's a Category 4 hurricane that damaged close to 94,000 homes. And get this, up to 1 million cars were wrecked. And at least 30,000 people had to flee their home to find a temporary shelter. And my aunt happened to be one of those people. And she's fine now. She's back at home and, and, and safe. But, uh, you know, it was a scary thought for a while there with what was happening. The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has said that it may cost as much as $180 billion, I can't even grasp that number. $180 billion to rebuild the state. And we've watched similar destruction throughout the Caribbean, in Florida and in Cuba with Hurricane Irma and Jose, and as Kevin was mentioning now with uh, Hurricane Maria, what's happening in Puerto Rico, the tragic and horrible devastation. Lots of destruction, lots of pain, and lots of worry. How did these people survive in the middle of these stores? How did they get through it? For many, they got through these storms because they got help from friends, people that they know and some people who they don't know. People in groups, groups just showed up to help them, and it was good to see. They got through these storms because of their courage and optimism and hope. And most of the people made it through these storms because they used their heads. They made good decisions, and they acted with wisdom. We have all experienced storms Sometimes we experience storms because of something stupid we've done. There are the natural consequences of bad choices that we might make. But sometimes they're not. Sometimes we're just living life and bad things happen. For some of us, the lucky ones, the storms may have only been a small bump on the road. But for some of us, we've experienced big storms where we've seen major disasters and seemingly insurmountable obstacles that have confronted us. It could have been an illness that affected your wife or your child, an issue in your marriage, maybe even a divorce. It could have been a financial crisis or unemployment, maybe loneliness or a private battle where you were fighting with 
depression. The question I want to ask this afternoon is what does it look like to be a Christian in the midst of one of these giant storms? How do you get through it? How do you survive? And what practical difference does it make for others that are with us that we know the God of the universe? Well, let's look at Acts 27 and see what the Bible has to say. And here we see that the Apostle Paul is on another journey, an incredible journey. We know from Acts that he's already been on three missionary journeys. But now he's headed to Rome where he's always wanted to preach the gospel there. And the Lord has already told him that he would be his witness in Rome. But what the Lord didn't mention to Paul was that he would only get there as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And now he's placed in the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius. And they board a ship and they begin a journey at sea that will take them to Rome. And on the way, they will confront a monster of a storm. So let's jump in. We're not going to read every verse in this long 44-verse chapter, but let's start with verses 1 and 2, and here's what it says. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adrantium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. And so off they went. They started out on the first leg of the journey, which would take them from Caesarea to the Lycian port of Myra. And almost right away, they encountered strong winds blowing from the northwest. It was difficult for this coastal vessel to handle the headwinds and the open sea. So the ship sailed around the east end of Cyprus and then hugged the coast of what is now Turkey. In Myra, they found a much larger ship, a grain ship carrying wheat from Egypt that was on its way to Rome. And so once again, they took off from there. But just as before, as they ran into strong headwinds, which made their progress very slow, and after several days of slow sailing, they approached Snidus, but had to go south under the island of Crete in order to make any headway at all. And eventually they arrived at a port named Fair Havens. So the trip starts slowly, really slow because of the strong wind. And Luke says twice in both verses 7 and 8 that it was difficult. But there's one thing that could have provided Paul with some comfort. It would have provided you with comfort. Paul was traveling with friends. This may surprise you, but it shouldn't because we've heard lots of stories about Paul here in our Acts series. So we ought to know by now that he was a man who made deep and intimate friends wherever he went. Notice first that Luke, the writer of Acts, is with him. We know that because of Luke's use of the first person plural in verses 1 and 2. He says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, we boarded a ship and we put out to sea. In one of his letters, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. You see, Luke was Paul's friend. And he probably boarded as the ship's doctor because he cared about Paul and wanted to attend to his physical needs. But that's not all. Verse 2 says that they were accompanied by Aristarchus a Macedonian of Thessalonica. 
You should know that Paul had traveled with him on his third missionary journey. We see this in Acts 19, 29. And now he's going to Rome with Paul. And here's an interesting side note. Aristarchus would later be a fellow prisoner with Paul in Rome. We see that in Colossians 4.10. Now that is a good and devoted friend. And then notice verse 3 where it says, The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. It appears that Paul has friends there in Sidon. And notice why Paul went to see them, not to care for them, but to receive care from them. Paul wasn't always the guy who had to be giving to others. There were times he knew he was weak and vulnerable, and he needed the help and care of friends. One of my most favorite people in the world is a boy named Justice Nicolau. Justice sings, he dances, and he loves trains. He knows a Bible verse for every letter in the alphabet. He also loves teenage mutant ninja turtles. He's the son of two of our dearest friends. Well, one night... Two years ago, Justice was rushed to the hospital because he had a bad headache. He was quickly put into the pediatric intensive care unit. It wasn't clear what was wrong, but something was wrong. And things got bad and things got worse because his brain was swelling. And the doctors eventually had to put Justice into a medically induced coma. His parents were doing everything they could could do, but there was nothing that they could do. They were sad. They were scared. They were on the edge. And the thing that helped them just a little bit, but it helped, was their friends and family. Because people flocked to the hospital just to be with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Groups of 20 or 30 crowding the waiting area, sleeping on the floors of the hospital at night. And they prayed for Justice and his parents. They brought food in for those that were there, lunch and dinner. And they started a GoFundMe campaign, which raised funds that were so needed and necessary because the parents couldn't work. Not now. They had to be with Justice. And word spread. It was local at first, and then it spread like fire with 200 to 300 people posting daily on Facebook from all over the country, praying on Facebook and giving words of encouragement. People posted pictures of themselves rooting for justice. Sometimes it was an individual. Sometimes it was a large group. Sometimes it was a well-known athlete. Sometimes it was a former president of the United States. It was amazing to watch what these friends did to support justice's parents. This didn't help get justice well, But it did give Justice's parents support and encouragement where they were feeling raw and emotionally shredded. They were in the middle of a storm, but at least with friends, they could come up for air. When the ship came to Fair Havens, they were faced with a decision. Luke says in verse 9, Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. That verse, that's a reference to the Jewish fast on the Day of Atonement, which means that it's probably early October when sailing on the Mediterranean Sea is very dangerous. Paul knew this, and so he advised that they stay and spend the winter in Fair Haven. 
In verse 10, Paul warns them of what will happen if they keep going. And he said to them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Paul's warning isn't based on some kind of word from God, but simply on common sense and his own experience at sea. You see, at this point, Paul had already been shipwrecked three times. I'm not sure I would want to be on a ship with a guy that had been shipwrecked three times. But the captain and the majority of the crew didn't want to stay in Fairhaven, and they convinced the centurion to keep going. The reason given in verse 12 is that the harbor was unsuitable to winter in. In other words, they didn't want to spend the winter there. It must not have been the greatest town. So they convinced the centurion to go to the city of Phoenix, a harbor about 50 miles up the coast of Crete. And Phoenix sounds like a better place to spend the winter, doesn't it? But this isn't Arizona. So off they go, up the coast of Crete. And at first it seemed they made the right decision. Luke says in verse 13, When a gentle southwest, south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchored and sailed along the shore of Crete. But that was the calm before the storm. Because Luke says in verses 14 and 15, before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. You see, the wind was so strong, they couldn't sail against it and get back to the island, even though they were close to the shore. So they had to let the ship just be driven along by this incredible wind, which was making huge waves in the water that came crashing down on the boat. They had no control, and they knew that they were in real danger. And then Luke describes over the next several verses five desperate measures that they had to take to survive the storm. First, in verse 16, they sailed under the shelter of a little island called Clauda to fix their lifeboat because it was dragging behind them in the water. Second, in verse 17, they took a rope, and get this, they were afraid their boat was going to break apart. So they slid the rope under the hull of the ship so as to tie it up like a package. That's how desperate they were. Third, they lowered the sea anchor into the water to act as a break because they were afraid that they would be driven onto the great Sirtis sandbanks which lined the coast of North Africa and caused danger and death to many sailors and where Paul's ship could be marooned miles out from shore. Fourth, in verse 18, as they took such a violent battering from the storm and were being violently tossed in the storm, they began to throw their cargo Overboard. You see, this storm was so big, the boat was leaking, water was getting in, and there was a real threat and imminent danger of sinking. So they needed to lighten the weight of the boat, which is why they started throwing out heavy merchandise and maybe even the grain that they were carrying. Fifth, in verse 19, we see that they threw even the ship's tackle overboard, which is clearly saying that they were panicked and desperate because there was a real and present danger of sinking, that the water was filling the boat. And so they did what they had to do. 
and began throwing over anything they could find, anything that they could move, like furniture and beds and luggage, maybe even excess rope and gearing for the ship. And finally, after 11 more days of this storm, when they couldn't even see the sun or the stars, which, by the way, is essential for navigation at night in those days, Luke says in verse 20 that we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So now they're probably thinking, man, we should have listened to Paul. He was right. Fairhaven sounds pretty good right now. And I've got to imagine that Luke, Aristarchus, and even Paul are losing hope. I think they wonder, as we so often do, Lord, what are you doing? You control the winds and the waves. You stilled the storm for your disciples. Why don't you do that right now? When things are at their lowest, Paul speaks up again. And I love what he says. He's so direct. He's so Paul. He starts out and says in verse 21, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves the damage and loss. In other words, I told you so. But he's not finished. He goes on and says, But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. The first time Paul spoke up in verse 10, he did so simply based on common sense as an experienced traveler. But here he speaks up as a prophet of God. Here's the point. We need the support of friends if we're going to get through the storm. We also need courage. And that may not sound like a real Christian word, but twice Paul says to them, keep up your courage. And let's be clear, Paul is saying that our courage, like Paul's, is built not on on our own ability, but on our faith in God. And what does that look like? Well, first, Paul knew that he belonged to God. We see this in verse 23 when he speaks of the God whose I am. Do you know that you belong to God? Not only because he created you, but he loves you so much that he has redeemed you. You are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that you were bought with a price. Second, Paul knew that he was serving God. He says in verse 23 that God whom I serve. He remembered that he was doing what he was supposed to be doing, even though in the midst of serving him, he now encounters this seemingly hopeless situation. And third, Paul could, could have courage because he believed God. What did he believe? The angel told him while he was on the ship that God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Then Paul says, I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Friends, that's called faith. Faith isn't positive thinking. It's banking on the revealed promises of God. Faith is a refusal to panic because of who God is and what he's promised in his word. God has promised that he will never leave or forsake you. 
that he loves you and that you are his beloved even when you are in a storm. Justice was in a coma for six weeks. The doctors uh, removed part of his skull so that the pressure would be relieved on his brain. The doctors considered removing more of his skull to relieve more pressure, but ultimately they changed their minds. The doctors told Justice's parents that he would most likely not make it, that he would die. They said if he did survive, he'd never be able to breathe on his own. He would never be able to walk or talk or eat by himself. Justice and his parents were in a big storm, a violent storm that rocked them one way and then rocked them another. Their world had stopped. They were in the pit. They cried out to God for his healing powers. They cried out to God asking why. How could this happen? And they cried out to God asking for help. And they picked up their Bible and they began reading while sitting in Justice's dark room with a loud ventilator and people praying over justice. And they came across a verse in Exodus 14, 14, which just seemed like God was graciously giving it to them. The verse says, the Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. God was telling them to trust him, that he would be with them, that this was his fight, so they should be calm. Well, this verse became very important to them and to their friends. It was put on T-shirts. It was put on plastic bracelets. And for some, it was tattooed behind their ears. Justice's parents trusted God. They did, and they still do. But it is still hard to stay calm. It is hard to have faith and courage when your baby boy is struggling in the middle of a storm. So besides support from friends, we need courage to get through the storm, but we also need wisdom. Another word for this is common sense. We sometimes think that people like Paul are religious intellectuals, people that can help you learn about Jesus, and it's nice to be around someone who prays, but it just seems that those aren't the people you lean on to get your ship to safety. That's why they didn't listen to Paul before. When he told them to stay in fair haven, they probably thought, yeah, thank you, pastor, but you focus on the religious stuff and we'll do the sailing. But as the story proceeds, we see that Paul kind of takes over the ship. He's already pleaded with him to take courage, but now he makes two more pleas. First, he calls them to stay together. It's now been two weeks since they've been swept from the coast of Crete. But in verse 27, Luke says, When about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. This is dangerous because it meant that the water was shallow and, that they, and they feared that they might run aground on a reef. So they dropped four anchors to make sure they would hold for the night and waited for dawn. But then in verse 30, Luke says that a few of the sailors tried to escape from the boat. They let down that lifeboat and pretended to be laying out more anchors. But Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers in verse 31, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And surprisingly, this time the centurion listens. You see, the centurion is learning that there's something special about Paul. Luke says in verse 32, So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat, and let it fall away. 
The second thing that Paul pleads for in exercising wisdom is for them all to eat something. Look at verses 33 and 34. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair. When you are in a state of panic, food is not the first thing on your mind. And as a result of not eating for two weeks, these men are in a weakened state. Making it to shore will take all of the the energy that they have. So Paul says in verse 34, Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. And then Paul leads by example. He took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. He then broke the bread and began to eat. And they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. The interesting thing about all of this is that God had promised Paul that every life would be spared. Yet Paul took action, telling everyone on the ship that they had to stay together and that they needed to eat. Here's the point. It seems that God's promises don't negate our thinking and our activity. Our actions are often the means by which God works out his promises. So the fact that God announces what the end result is going to to be doesn't mean that we can just sit on our hands and say, well, it's all going to work out. God wants us to use use wisdom and to act in line with common sense to carry out his purpose. So you're in a storm. What do you do? Use your head and work and act and take initiative in ways that are keeping with good sense and what you know is God's purpose. Justice got out of the hospital four months after he went in. It was a big day, a day of celebration. It was because Justice made it out alive. Justice and his parents made it out of the hospital because of good decisions by doctors like Dr. Bob and good care and advocacy for Justice's parents and friends. Justice could walk and breathe on his own when he left the hospital, which felt like a miracle, but he still couldn't talk or eat by himself. Sounds hard and overwhelming. And discouraging, doesn't it? Well, truthfully, it was, and it still is. Justice's parents know that he has a long road of recovery ahead. And they have hope and courage, but they are still in a storm. It's not as violent, but it is still a raging storm that will not pass quickly or easily. And they will do the work with Justice and his doctors but they still need the support of their family and friends to help them with doctor's appointments and unexpected bills and mental breaks and to walk with them through the grief and sadness, to struggle with them as they question the outcome and wonder, where were you, God? You see, this is a hard question, but it is an honest question. And some of us, some Christians, we want to provide a fix. We want to provide a cure with measurable results. We want to quote a Bible verse or give assurances of better days ahead. But this is not how life always works. So as friends, we need to learn how to just be with people that are in a storm. To help them heal. Which takes time. It is inefficient. It requires patience. And it requires our presence. 
Henry Nouwen describes it this way. When we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives means the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The ship finally approached the island of Malta. So they sailed toward it until the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The ship began to break into pieces from the pounding of the surf. So they all jumped into the water and they swam to shore. And everyone made it safely to the island, just as the angel said. What's amazing to me about this this story of Paul is the impact he had on those around him. We've seen him speak with Jewish scholars and governors and kings. But now he's with sailors and soldiers and prisoners. Do you know why most of these people were headed to Rome? Because they had been condemned to death. And were going to Rome, and some might actually end up in the Colosseum to amuse the Romans with their death. But Paul showed these men a God who cared for them, and a God that could give a person courage in the face of death. And as they watched Paul... As they watched God supply him with supporting friends and courage and common sense, perhaps they would come to know his God, our God, as well. Have you thought about that? How else will your shipmates, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, and dare I say, your enemies, come to know the living and true God who loves them apart from seeing you survive the same storm that they are in? There are people all around us who are in a storm today, and I wonder, are we doing enough to help them? I'm not trying to make any of us feel guilty. I'm not, but I have to ask, are we being the friends they need, providing them with support and care? Because some of our friends and neighbors are in a storm. It will not pass quickly or easily, and they are desperate, and they are in need of help. Should we be coming alongside Project We Hope to help the 431 homeless people in East Palo Alto? They're living on the streets and in the bushes, hidden from so many of us. Should we be partnering with Life Moves at their feeding kitchens, like the one in Palo Alto, right across from Stanford at Town and Country, that serves about 200 meals a day? I just read the 2017 Assessment of Student Performance and Progress report for California that showed that only 31 and 37% of Latino and African-American students are proficient in reading compared to 64 and 76% for white and Asian students. That's a big gap. So I asked, should we be reading books to children to help them learn to read at Garfield Community School in Redwood City? Should we be going to the Haven House in Menlo Park to help single mothers who are struggling to make ends meet? How about becoming a big brother or a sister to an elementary school student or a middle schooler or a high schooler that needs help with their homework, that needs mentoring and someone to love them at a girls and boys club in Menlo Park or East Palo Alto? I think of the 800,000 documented dreamers who are living with a real possibility that they may be deported. I think of the suffering in Mexico from the recent earthquake. And I think of the people suffering in Houston, in Florida, and Puerto Rico from the hurricanes. Lots of destruction, lots of pain, 
lots of worry. What is our calling as individuals and as a church to help those around us, both near and far, as they go through a storm? Here at Spark, we believe that we are supposed to pray. We believe we're supposed to give. We believe that we're supposed to be advocates for those in need. And we believe that we're supposed to act, to get involved, to do our part, to bring God's kingdom down here to help those that are in a storm. I am proud of the way that Spark Church stands up for people in need to assist and to engage and be people that pray by walking. That's part of the reason why Tammy and I joined this church. We love your heart. We have a group here at Spark. We call it the Rescue Team. That's trying to figure out how we can be better about this, more responsive, quicker, and more effective at responding to our friends and our neighbors locally and globally who are in a storm. And if you'd like to be a part of this group, please come up and let me know. Let Kevin know. Let Danielle know. We all have storms. Danielle said last week that the Bible is a story of people in crisis. Are you in a storm? If so, please let us know. Give us the chance to be the friends that you need to come alongside you and to care for you. Not necessarily to fix it, to be with you, though, as you're going through this storm. Come up after the service. I'll stay up here. I'd love to talk to you about it and to pray with you. And Lucia's here, and Felicia's here, and Chris and Wilner are here, and they would love to pray for you at the end of the service. Let me close tonight with this prayer. Father God, we know that you are a Father, a God who cares for everyone. And so, Father, I love the way that when we come to know you and sense your love, uh, you help us to have uh, eyes that are open and ears that can hear others around us that maybe are hurting. Father, help us to be people that can lend a hand, give money, serve food to people that maybe are in a storm. And we know that, again, no quick fix but we just want to be your hands and feet here in this world. And we pray for this in your name. Amen.